Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. Today, we are extremely pleased to have with us award-winning author Michael Brenner. Professor Brenner holds the chair of Jewish history and culture at Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich. Additionally, Professor Brenner is the Seymour and Lillian Benson Chair in Israeli Studies at the American University in Washington, D.C., Professor Brenner has authored eight books on Jewish history, including In Search of Israel, The History of an Idea, A Short History of the Jews, and his works have been translated into 12 languages. Additionally, Professor Brenner is the editor and co-editor of 18 books. And today we will be discussing Professor Brenner's fascinating book, In Hitler's Munich, Jews, the Revolution, and the Rise of Nazism and uh, urge all our viewers and listeners, as I did, to simply go on to Amazon, click of a button, it's delivered, usually free, straight to your home. Again, thank you so much, um, Professor Brenner, for your your time today. We appreciate it very much. Thank you, Ari, for having me. Just uh, to start off, a little bit about your background and how you came about writing in Hitler's Munich. Okay, I, I try not to make it too long. Um, I um, So as you mentioned before, I'm a professor of Jewish history in Munich. I have been there for 25 years. Um, and I also grew up not far from Munich um, as the child of Holocaust survivors. So the Bavarian Jewish history, um, in a way, was in my blood. I was always interested in these issues. And I started working on the Jewish revolutionaries in Munich because I thought that's such, and we'll get into this, of course, more. It's such an interesting and weird story um, for my master's thesis many years ago, over 30 years ago. In the end, I ended up writing on something different, um, but I started collecting documents. So this book uh I'd say the the roots of this book really go back um, over 30 years and in a certain way, uh, even to my own youth. Excellent. Um, Just briefly, the state of Munich Jewry after World War I, what are we looking at in terms of the Jewish community in Munich? The Jewish community of Munich was not one of the largest and most and historically most important in Germany. Um, it was very much in the shadow of the Berlin Jewish community, which in the 1920s had about 170,000 Jews. Um, Frankfurt had about 30,000. In Munich, there were about 12,000 Jews. So uh, it's somewhat smaller, um, but still it is a community that plays a an important role in the life of the city. Uh, many of the Jews in Munich were middle class, had shops, some had the big department stores, some played a role among the, um, you know, elite in terms of uh, the artists, the writers, but also physicians and lawyers. So they had their place in Munich society. Munich before World War One was a progressive city in a conservative state. Uh, Bavaria always was kind of a rural conservative state, but before World War I, Munich was a rather progressive city which had the avant-garde 
uh, art scene, literature scene, more than Berlin for a while. And the Jews of Munich were part of that, I would say, progressive conservative mix. Many of the Jews um, were monarchists. They were, they were, you know, like most of the Bavarian population, uh, loyal to the Bavarian king, the House of Wittelsbach, which had ruled Bavaria over 700 years. Um, and at the same time, um, they were open to cultural um, innovations and 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 th- that kind of mixture, I would say, characterized Munich's Jews as a, a large part of Munich's middle-class society in general. And I should say that the Munich Jewish community was relatively new. Um, it, it was only established in the early 19th century or re-established after they had been expelled in the Middle Ages. And most of the Jews who lived in Munich uh, in the early 20th centuries had their roots in the small villages, in the rural Jewish communities uh, around Munich, uh, in Swabia, and also in Franconia, in the north of Bavaria. And they had come to Munich mainly in the second half of the 19th century and the early 20th century. Um. World War I, Germany loses the war. People know about the Versailles, Versailles Treaty and what that what happened in, in very general terms, perhaps. What exactly was the Munich Revolution that took place after World War I? Yeah. So um, as we know, the monarchy um, collapsed uh, in Germany after World War I. In Berlin, the Kaiser, the emperor, uh, abdicated and fled Germany, went to Holland. Uh, but even two days before the German emperor, who also was at the same time the Prussian king, abdicated or had to leave the country, the Bavarian king, so every every other German state also had their royalty. Bavaria had a king, uh, and this uh, Bavarian king, Ludwig, um, was forced to flee even two days earlier. What happened? There was a big demonstration <clears throat> on November 7th <clears throat> uh, on a big, big play, uh, open place in Munich, which actually is the same place where the Oktoberfest takes place every September, not October. And um, at, at that time in November, on November 7th of 1918, there were two demonstrations. One was by the more moderate, uh, so what they were called the, the majority social democrats. Um, and one was by a smaller group who had split from the social democrats because they were pacifists. They wanted to end the war even much earlier. And they were led, they were called the independent social democrats. They were led by Kurt Eisner. Kurt Eisner was the leader of this minority faction of the pacifist social democrats and in contrast to the majority demonstration he and his group didn't go home at 10 o'clock he went through the city and he realized that the people were they they didn't want to have the, the king anymore the royal the dynasty of the Wittelsbach after over 700 years 
um, was basically driven out of the city without spelling one blood of dro- one drop of blood, and um, the army, the remaining uh, the, the soldiers that were in the city, uh, they just wanted to end the war. Uh, so there was no attempt to defend the the Bavarian king. He fled overnight uh, secretly into Austria. And uh, Kurt Eisner, a socialist Prussian Jew, all three things are not necessarily what you connect with Bavarian politics until then. Um, Kurt Eisner became mm, the first, uh, as it was called, prime minister. In America, we might call it governor, uh, because Bavaria was not an independent state, but it was a state within Germany. But it, it, it there was called the Prime Minister of Bavaria. And around him, there were quite a number of other people of, let's say, Jewish background. Some of them um, were actually converted or their parents converted, but most of them were, most of those uh, Jewish people around Eisner um, were at least nominally Jewish. And what role did Kurt Eisner's Jewishness play in his political career? You, you, you make, make note that um, some converted, some maybe didn't convert. Was there anything Jewish about his political career? Yeah, that's a good question. And I try to uh, go into detail in my book about it. So, of course, we shouldn't exaggerate. Eisner was not a a Jew in the religious sense, but he never denied his Jewishness. In fact, he emphasized um, that as long as there is anti-Semitism, or as he said, as long as Jews are a persecuted minority anywhere, I will not leave this community behind. Uh, He grew up in a what we might call more or less assimilated Jewish family, middle-class family in Berlin. Um, he had, uh, as it was usual then, a Jewish religious education in the public school. And um, he identified culturally, that's what we would say today, he identified culturally uh, with a lot of the Jewish heritage of his family and of the Jews in general. For example, he always related uh, to uh, the biblical parts that, which appealed to him, the prophets, and he was proud of being part, having this heritage in his family. So he never denied it. He never uh, played it down, but he also didn't practice Judaism as a religious Jew. I mean, after all, he was also a socialist. We're... we're... Was Eisner and the other um, Munich Jewish revolutionaries, were they different from other um, Jewish revolutionaries, perhaps those in Russia, in how they identified with the Jewish community? Yes. Um, I would say somebody like Trotsky in Russia or even Rosa Luxemburg uh, in Berlin um, they downplayed their Jewishness very much. Uh, they tried not to make this in, in any way a topic. And, and, and Eisner was different. He, um, 
had no problem of talking, calling himself a Jew. Um, he had no problem of openly coming out against anti-Semitism. Um, whereas Rosa Luxemburg said, you know, the, if Jews are attacked, it's not dearer to her heart than in, any other one would be attacked. And for Eisner, it was something that he had, and we know this from his private correspondence. There was another interesting relationship which influenced Eisner very much. Um, in his younger years, he was a young journalist in the small city of Marburg. And Marburg was a university town. And that's where Hermann Cohen, uh, the most important Jewish philosopher of the late 19th, early 20th century, taught as a professor. And the two of them developed a very close friendship. Hermann Cohen wrote one of the most important um, books later in life uh, on Judaism as a kind of rational religion. He was a big German patriot, and uh, in contrast to Eisner, he was not a he was not a pacifist. He was very much in favor of the German war effort, but he died before the war was over. And the two of them developed a close relationship. And for those of uh, listeners who are familiar with Jewish philosophy, Hermann Cohen is a big name, and Eisner was very much influenced by him. Were the Jewish revolutionaries in Munich, were they extremely prominent in the revolution, or is that just a perception that they were? And did their quote-unquote prominent role engender increased anti-Semitism at the time? So I argue that I think there was no other revolution in Europe where Jews were as prominent as in Munich in 1918 and 19. The revolution had a few different parts. Uh, there was the revolution I mentioned in 1919, and just to chronologically for to, to get a uh, background right, um, Eisner was prime minister until February of 1919, when he actually was on his way to resign because his party had lost in the elections and he was shot. Uh, he was assassinated on his way to, to resign. And after that followed some period of political chaos, including two Soviet republics. That sounds very Russian, but it's just a translation of actually we should call it council republics because the Soviet is a council. Uh, the first one was not communist, not uh, oriented towards Moscow. The second one was the leaders of all of those uh, uh, short-lived uh, council republics were all Jewish, the most important leaders. And some of them were already um, associates of Eisner, like Gustav Landauer. Now, Gustav Landauer was uh, the most Jewish of them. He was very much engaged. Uh, first of all, he was an important intellectual in Germany at the time, a translator, a writer. Um, and his political view was more like uh, an, an anarchist than anything else. Uh, but he became a, a leading proponent of the Eisner's revolution, then of the Council of Republics. Eisner was very interested in Zionism. Um, he was very interested in East European uh, Jews, and um, he was a um, he, he had Jewish knowledge as well. 
so so he was one of them but there were others uh writers there were many of them were poets and writers like Erich Musam Ernst Toller quite prominent uh, some of them later in life uh, as writers and uh, all of them um somehow stood by their jewishness as secular jews of course but uh, never denying it. And that, I think, is very interesting if we compare it to another revolution that had Jewish protagonists like in Hungary uh, under Bela Kuhn or, as I said before, Trotsky or Luxembourg. These were figures who, in a way, were also fascinated by, a, uh, by, this, by, by, by some of their Jewish some parts of their Jewish heritage, especially the prophets, which they always recalled. And I think the most powerful scene uh, to illustrate this is the moment um, of Kurt Eisner's burial um, in February of 1919, a few days after he was assassinated. It was actually the largest uh, procession through the streets of Munich. Munich had seen so far about a hundred thousand people were on the streets, uh, and the main speech, the main eulogy, was delivered by his close friend Gustav Landauer. So there was a one Jew eulogizing another Jew who was prime minister of Bavaria, and what he said in his speech is, "Kurt Eisner, the Jew." Very interesting to mention that and recalled how close he was to the heritage of the biblical prophets. And because of this prominent role that um, engender an increase in anti-Semitism, and how did that anti-Semitism manifest itself? Yes, I argue in the book that we shouldn't simplify, oversimplify it. Uh, I wouldn't say that anti-Semitism existed because of the role of prominent Jews in these revolutions. Um, but it was definitely used by anti-Semites and very explicitly by Hitler. Now, that's one of the, of course, moments where why we think Munich might be a little more important at that moment than many other cities, because that was the place where Adolf Hitler witnessed the revolutionary events. Um, he came back after the war to the city he had moved to before the war, namely Munich, and he witnessed um, many of those revolutionary events. Um, and he later wrote in Mein Kampf that that made him a politician and that turned him, uh, you know, into the person uh, with the political views he had. If that is correct, we don't know. That's what he later claimed. But it's interesting, uh, even that he, that's what he claimed later. So, yes, definitely, um, it was used by those who may have been anti-Semites anyway to strengthen their arguments uh, against socialism. Because those few Jews who happened to be in leadership roles happened to be also socialists at this part. And we are... At a, in, in a Germany that does not want to concede or to admit that Germany could have lost the war on the battleground. They, they developed a legend called the 
uh, stab in, uh, in, in the back legend. So Germany was basically stabbed in the back by their own people, namely Jews and socialists. Now, if you were Jewish and socialist, you can imagine um, with this uh, increasing mood of blaming and finding scapegoats within Germany, namely Jews and socialists, it was not easy for them. 